If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 174 of the Leading Learning Podcast, where we talk with Jane Way Skillern. Currently a senior fellow at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley, Jane has taught social entrepreneurship, nonprofit strategy, and network leadership to MBAs and executives for more than 15 years. She's an author, a speaker, and a leading voice on network leadership. And Salisa, you got to talk with Jane. What did you cover? Well, we spent the majority of our time on network leadership, and as you and I have talked about many times before, Jeff, you know, we believe that many learning businesses are fundamentally working for large-scale impact. They're trying to move the needle in the field or the profession or the industry that they serve, and it seems reasonable to uh, assume that an organization going it alone won't be as effective or as fast as multiple organizations in partnership. And so the network leadership model offers a way to structure that working together. And I want to be sure to say thanks to Nancy Bacon, the Associate Director at Washington Nonprofits. She's a podcast listener who wrote to us to let us know about Jane's work around network leadership. And Nancy shared that she really appreciates uh, the network leadership model as an alternative approach to collective impact, which I discussed with Seth Kahn in episode 157. Because she really feels like, in part, um, that network leadership really factors in an understanding of human nature around power and privilege. Well, we're definitely thankful to, to Nancy for, for calling out this uh, sort of alternative model. Um, grateful to Nancy for being a part of our network. She's a very valuable part of our network. As you mentioned, she's listening to the podcast, but she's also led a session at Learning Technology Design and is uh, uh, you know, always participating in, in things that we do. And we, we definitely appreciate that. And we always, always welcome and appreciate recommendations from any listeners here for topics or interviews. So if you, as a valuable part of our network, dear listener, have a suggestion, please send it our way. All you have to do is write to us at leadinglearning@tagoras.com, or you can comment on any episode. Uh, we give you the show notes for every episode, and at the bottom of those show notes, there is an area to comment. So we hope that you will be a uh, an active member of the Leading Learning Network. But now, Let's get back to that topic of network leadership and roll the interview with Jane Way Skillern. Hello and welcome. I'm Salisa Steele. This is the Leading Learning Podcast, and today I'm joined by Jane Way Skillern. Jane is currently a senior fellow at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. Formerly, she served on the faculty of the London Business School, Harvard Business School, and Stanford Graduate School of Business. She's a teacher, having taught social entrepreneurship, nonprofit strategy, and network leadership to MBAs and executives for more than 15 years. She's an author. She's the lead author of the Facebook Entrepreneurship in the Social Sector. She's a speaker, and she's a leading voice on network leadership. Jane, welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here. So to start us off, I want to give you uh, a chance to say a bit more about yourself and your background. I obviously synopsized many years of work into just a few sentences. So what else would you like for listeners to, to know about you and your work? 
Well, I think perhaps the um, work started in academia, but really I am most focused on sharing these ideas that I've learned as a researcher with practitioners in the field and really helping them to do their job better. That's been my goal all throughout my career. And so it's really been rewarding to be out in the field working with senior executives and leaders um, in all different sectors currently. Well, great. That focus on on putting ideas and research into practice is definitely one that I, I share with you. Um, and, and one of the things that I'll start by saying is that, you know, I really believe that most learning businesses are at the heart, at their heart of, about large scale impact, that they're often trying to really have an impact on their field or their profession or the industry that they serve. And so, it seems reasonable to assume that an organization kind of going it alone won't be as effective or as fast as multiple organizations in partnership. And so then this is where then I begin to see that the network leadership model could offer a way to structure that partnership um, of these organizations that are really aiming at that collective impact. So would you tell us what network leadership is and kind of how the model came to be? Sure. So I really think of network leadership as an approach of a way of working and a mindset of how one leads that really is less about the individual, the organization, but much more about engaging and mobilizing resources and partners outside of their initial and um, immediate control. And I think um, it really came about because of a confluence of a number of factors. First and foremost, I had studied networks as a doctoral student and kind of always had that in the back of my mind, the importance of relationships and um, networks as um, critical factors in determining organizational outcomes. Um, And when I started as a junior faculty member at Harvard Business School, there was a lot of interest, this was early 2000s, um, in innovation in the social sector, how to mm-hmm. scale organizations, how to grow, um, a lot of new money and talent moving into the social impact space. And there was so much interest in that growth phenomenon that I had started to do some research with a mentor of mine um, by the name of Greg Deese. And um we started looking at how do organizations grow? What structures do they take? What are the opportunities, the challenges? And saw over time that it was exceedingly difficult to grow to scale, to attract and um, pull in all the resources, then grow your organizational infrastructure, then roll out programs and manage a large infrastructure, even if you were successful at all of those um, Tasks, And then at the same time, I was teaching in our executive education programs. And here we had all these senior leaders, both board members and executive teams coming through our nonprofit um, leadership program and board training programs. And what we were hearing from these senior executives, these were leaders of the largest, most successful, almost corporate type nonprofits, um, the Boys and Girls Clubs, Red Cross, the Nature Conservancy, Habitat for Humanity, very successful organizations, um, big brands, big um, infrastructure. And many of these senior executives were struggling also. They were struggling with how do we get our headquarters to work effectively with our field offices? How do we get our field offices to learn from each other? How do we make sure that the sum of the individual parts is um, adding up to a greater whole? And so they were often focused on 
strategy changes, restructuring? How do we move things around within the organization in order to get to that scale of impact? And so I had these two very different phenomena that we were looking at. One was small organizations within innovation seeking to grow to scale, but they're really generally very subscale. And then these large corporate type nonprofits, and they were all struggling. And it began to occur to me that maybe growth of organizations, scaling out, rolling out more programs, wasn't necessarily the path to greatest impact. Mm. And I was actually Uh, developing case studies for my MBA elective on social entrepreneurship. And there were a few case studies that really stood out in my mind because they were led by leaders who had a completely different view on how to get to the mission impact. They focused on the mission first and foremost and really engaged with their peers and even sometimes their competitors to find the common ground and move forward on addressing a situation, a problem, or creating social value. So it was really leveraging resources, not only within the organization, but also outside. And they were very deliberate about that strategy. And so I began to explore that networked approach where it was less about the organization as a vehicle for change and the network in the larger field as a vehicle for change. And and really... The rest is history because since I came across those cases, I became more and more interested in that and put almost all of my attention into that approach rather than more traditional organization-centric, more managerial approaches. Well, and so I think you've just begun to get at this, but maybe there's a little bit more to say in terms of how does network leadership that model, how does it really differ from kind of other approaches to uh, collective impact? I mean, you were just talking about that, the idea that it's it's much more decentralized, for, for example. Yes. Yeah, so I'd say the argument for why collaboration is largely the same. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody in any field that would say collaboration doesn't matter, working in teams effectively doesn't matter, you just need the best and brightest, and they can go it alone and solve whatever problems the organization's faced with. Um, I think there has traditionally um, been uh, a tendency to think about collaboration as kind of driven from often from the top down. So even uh, the collective impact approach, which I think very highly of, and and many of the folks at FSG are friends. In fact, I've done a guest blog on their website, um, the collective impact website, talking about how a network leadership approach can enhance a collective impact approach. So Mm -hmm. I would say the collective impact approach starts more from the strategy and the structure and the systems that you need to have in place in order to drive large-scale collaboration. And then it is often um, depending upon funders to put resources in place to hire staff for a backbone infrastructure and really kind of push this approach forward. And oftentimes it involves creating new collaborations, right? They're, they're creating a collective impact initiative where maybe the collaborations didn't exist before. With the network leadership approach, I kind of turn everything on its head and say, let's start with less structure, strategy, and systems. Let's start with the values, the relationships, the culture that needs to be in place in order to have a collaborative function. i look more at very bottoms-up organic approaches to collaboration. So often these collaboration networks start as bilateral relationships. They're not this large 
blueprint that was mapped out at the outset and executed step by step over a large period of time, but rather two or three kindred spirits find each other. They're equally committed to the mission, ready and willing to put up resources, invest heavily, give up control, and sometimes um, even recognition in in the spirit of addressing or create addressing a problem or creating a solution or uh, generating that social value. So it really is very problem oriented or solution driven rather than collaboration for collaboration's sake. Mm. And then the other piece is all of these networks that I've studied really built on existing relationships in the community, that social capital that was already there. So people who already know and trust each other, they start working together. They bring their organizations together. They start bringing their staffs together. They are really acting as the catalyst rather than someone else forcing them with a very blunt tool of funding in many cases um, to force organizations or individuals to work together. And so in many ways, it's enabling people find each other as partners in these networks because they're helping each other do what they would have already wanted to do on their own. But they, again, have found that common ground and then start working with each other because they see the mutual interest. So it's much more internally driven and organically driven than somebody from the outside telling them, you must partner, you must do X, Y, and Z because we told you to and we like the way it looks on paper and here's a pot of money or resources or support in order to do that. But it has to happen on these terms. It's much more driven by the participants themselves, and they're the ones deciding who they should be partnering with, what the partnership looks like, how the dynamics of the partnership play out. And in in that respect, it is it is much more dynamic. It's not something you can plan at the outset, draw out on a on a, a grand strategic plan, and then say, okay, we're going to execute this large partnership map over. Uh, two or three years. That that map is probably obsolete by the time the ink is dry. You really <laughs> need to think about the collaboratives as what's working now, who are the trusted partners, how can we engage with each other, how can we work together to solve a problem, and then start working as the relationship starts to bear fruit. You either continue to invest more, or perhaps there's a change in staff or things start to fall apart, and then you say, well, then this partnership perhaps isn't the most valuable, but are there other trusted partners that I can engage with in a similar way? to then create more value. So it's much more emergent, dynamic, flexible, and requires that ability to continue learning and adapting with the partnerships as the issue or the field or the context evolves. Well, and it's one thing I'm hearing in what you're talking about there too, is that it's about tapping into this, this, the intrinsic motivation of the people involved um, in working together. So it's about what they value um, and, and what they uh, believe is important versus the extrinsic motivation of, of the funding or the resources or the support, um, which I think is, is a nice distinction and one we've talked about on the podcast before that, that intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. If you're looking for a partner for your learning business, we suggest you check out our sponsor for this quarter. Blue Sky eLearn is the creator of the PATH Learning Management System, an award-winning cloud-based learning solution that allows organizations to easily deliver, track, and monetize valuable education and event content online. Blue Sky also provides webinar and webcast services, helping you maximize your content and create deeper engagement with your audience across the world. To find out more about Blue Sky eLearn and everything they offer, visit leadinglearning.com slash blue sky. 
And now, back to Salisa and Jane as they turn to the principles of network leadership. Um, you've begun to talk talk about it some, but I, I, I know that you've, um, that there's sort of four principles that, that are underlie the, the network leadership model. And I'm thinking it might be helpful to, to talk about those four. Like I said, I know you've begun to get at some of them, but um, could you walk us through those four principles? Sure. So across all of these different case examples, and I basically spent my entire career the last um, 18 years studying high-performing networks and seeing what do they have in common? What are the common lessons that we can take from these thriving collaboratives, these thriving networks? And um, there are four principles that stand out time and time again across different sector lines, across different or types of organizations, whether large or small, whether uh, philanthropic organizations, sometimes they're other types of organizations as well. These organizations all share something in common. And again, it's because what I'm describing as network leadership is an organization culture, a set of values and principles for how people behave in the organization and with each other outside of the organization, but across the collaborative. So the four principles are a focus on mission before the organization's interests. So there's usually a broader goal or um, vision of what people are trying to achieve. And it's that common ground that's found amongst the partners that really drives the relationships and really drives who's willing to give what and invest. And you'll find that people are much more generous in focusing on the mission rather than worrying so much about what's in it for me? How can I maximize my own short-term organizational outcomes? But really focusing on the big picture is absolutely essential and stands out as one of the key drivers for the success of these networks. The second is uh, that these relationships are governed primarily by trust rather than top-down controls. Now, this isn't to say they don't have formal contracts, they don't have MOUs. In some cases, they did. In some cases, they did not. But the fact is, these relationships depended heavily on trust amongst the participants, that there was enough alignment of shared values and a commitment to the larger mission and a trust that each of the parties was going to commit fully and fairly with integrity on their shared uh, goals. And that is in and of itself, probably the most critical factor is the mm-hmm. trust-based relationships that makes really makes the world go round, as we all know. Um, and even in our personal relationships and our work relationships, that's absolutely essential. And I would say, from what I've seen, even though they had contracts in place, even though they might have had MOUs, that wasn't really what made the collaborative function and and hum. But rather, it was that trust and. I think you could safely say that trust is the most powerful governance mechanism in the world. Mm. That if you get the right people on board and they share the values and you have an equal commitment to a shared goal, that amount of trust and the unwillingness to break that trust leads to behaviors that are very, very closely aligned with what you might have gotten um, with formal contracts and all that, but even better and far more superior because you can't you can't possibly plan for every contingency in a contract. And the last thing people want to do is drag each other into court in order to enforce a contract. That if you have that degree of trust, there's just this automatic um, 
governance mechanism or, or monitoring mechanism is that you don't want to break that trust because you've invested heavily and that you know your partner's invested heavily and there's this mutual respect for each other and reciprocity that this is something that matters and you're committed to it and you will behave accordingly with integrity and um, that stands out probably above and beyond everything else that I've seen. The next is an emphasis on humility rather than brand building and self-promotion and uh, this is really critical as well and it's not just humility when it comes to um, when there's an opportunity for getting some public recognition or being in the spotlight, but it's humility on every dimension. So everything from, well, I might bring something valuable to the table, whether it's resources, talent, particular technical expertise, but at the same time, I know that will only take me so far and I depend and rely upon all of these other resources and expertise that are out there that I don't control, I don't own. And therefore, I treat my peers and partners as equals, not as, well, I bring the money, so I'm the most important or I have the highest, you know, academic or highest uh, credentials in um, academic training or whatever. So I'm the smartest person in the room. <laughs> the difference in network leadership is that there is no single smartest person in the room ever. And that is acknowledged by everybody involved. And there's this understanding that, again, those resources that people bring may be very valuable, but there are other ones that are equally valuable. And so the partners stand on equal footing with each other. And so that's where the humility plays out as well, not just when it's time to, again, get that public recognition, but in the day-to-day -day work of when decisions are being made, people are willing to say, I'll defer to my partner because they have a better sense of the community's needs. I'll defer to my partner because while they may not bring the most financial resources, they have the deep technical expertise that I need. So there's that deference to peers and partners on a regular basis, and it happens mutually. It's not um, that one organization or, or institution is being exploited by their partner, but rather there's that mutual understanding is that when the person who's best able to address that situation or that challenge or the, or the organization is best able to do it, the rest of the network partners are ready and willing to acknowledge that and value that and put that forward as their best face rather than always trying to clamor for the most power and recognition and control. And then, then finally, the, the last principle is this notion of we're trying to build constellations rather than single stars, right? This idea that we are all part of this larger community and that happens in any organization, no matter where you sit, that there's a bigger picture and a bigger ecosystem out there that we are part of. And we are trying to become part of that and catalyze the other actors so that we can build this constellation and make something that's greater than the sum of the individual parts. And that piece of constellation, not stars, and sometimes I refer to that as node rather than hub. You're not necessarily trying to be the hub of everything and the center of everything, but trying to put other players in place. And sometimes they may take a more prominent role and other times you might. But the idea is you're mobilizing the players around a mission rather than a single organization or a single approach or institution. What in that last piece, the that fourth principle around the the node, not hub. I mean, for me, I, I was thinking about that in terms of uh, that because it is more decentralized and more distributed. It seems like then it's arguably 
more secure um, and you know than, than kind of having that centralized authority or that that one organization that sort of everything hangs on and if they would happen to you know lose interest in the project or, or whatever um, that, that that really then undermines the the entire work that everyone is doing and I was thinking too about just the current sort of uh, state of society and state of the world and just wondering if you think that our current situation and sort of the, the current realities make network leadership particularly appropriate or appealing in today's world, maybe because it does seem um, um, more stable at some level. Yes, I absolutely agree with you that there is a sustainability component that is built into networks because you are building capacity and leadership and commitment throughout the network rather than kind of investing in it in one central hub and then that hub is responsible for making the network work. And in fact, many of the networks that I've looked at, they might have had an initial catalyst that was kind of playing more of that central role early on. But over time, they were deliberate in building that capacity throughout the field. And there were opportunities when perhaps the funding or that initial catalytic role uh, became less central, yet the network continued to work in this way because the network members themselves saw the value in it, saw the power of it, and so the network sustained itself without that ongoing infusion of support. And um, I'd say as far as what's happening in the world today, without a doubt, there is a tremendous hunger and opportunity for this way of leading to really take hold. I'd say it's still really, um, from where I sit, particularly from the U.S. context, it's still more uh, an exception rather than the rule of how organizations are governed or led. Uh, I think there's still a tendency to focus on kind of top-down, organization-centric, egocentric um kind of that more charismatic leadership mm, approach. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what this approach really is, is about bringing us back to the basics. This is about people getting along with people. And <laughs> as social beings, it's really common sense that we want to be part of a community. We want to belong. We want to be treated with respect. We want our community members to act with integrity. We want them to lead with an eye toward the larger shared vision of what we all hope, which is to be able to live a good life, take care of our families, have the resources we need. These are all fundamentally shared things that we want and we want to build a community around those values and and strive toward that. So I think if anything, what's happened in the world has gotten it too far away from the, the fundamental things that really drive and motivate people and communities. And so if anything, we're just going back to the basics. And I'm always the first to say, I did not admit this leadership concept. I have learned it from studying people who've done it very well. And many of these people are senior to me in their um, professional experience. They've had decades of um, work that they put in doing the work in this way. And I've had the privilege of studying them as a researcher and, and learning from their experience and then distilling their wisdom. So this, again, is not something that people necessarily have to learn from me. Many, many people in the world, in fact, most people in the world who are working in this way, working as network leaders, 
have been doing this not because they've learned it from me because it was the mo- but rather because it was the most common sense mm-hmm. rational way <laughs> to get to the most effective efficient and sustainable impact mm-hmm. wherever that they were so um i emphasize that always because i i want to make people understand that this isn't a real technically difficult challenging thing to do if we're focused on mission impact or some larger goal. Mm-hmm. It is exceedingly difficult if we're ego-driven, institutional focus and working in silos and trying to accumulate power in our little fiefdoms. That is very difficult. And I think that's kind of the direction the world has moved is that institutions and power players have become such driving forces in um, the dynamics of our society that people are beginning to see that's, hey, that's not really that's not the way that I would have imagined I want my world or my community to be functioning. And so there's a a yearning to go back to the basics of what about building communities from the ground up? What about investing in those relationships? And um, I think while social media and all this technology can be very valuable in facilitating our ability to connect with people at the same time, I think there's a a feeling of isolation that can emerge also when people see... um, each other as very kind of arm's length, limited um, contact relationships that, you know, we can count up thousands of friends or hundreds of friends on social Mm. media, but we don't have a few deep, authentic relationships that actually mean something to us. So I think that some of that has been exacerbated by um, our um, adoration of technology without necessarily thinking about the implications of what that means for our our actual relationships with people that are in our families and our communities that we care about. I mean, I'm always marveling at how um, people don't small talk anymore because anywhere you go when there's downtime, everybody's staring at their phones. (laughs) Or if you go to a restaurant, families aren't necessarily talking to each other at the restaurant. Everybody's staring at their phones. And I think, oh my goodness, what kind of world is this going to be where everybody's just entertain and absorbed in their bubbles. And of course, I know there are times when you certainly have to respond to something from work or something that's urgent. But the fact that we so easily and readily turn to our technology as a way to pass the time, I think we are losing that ability to connect with people in meaningful ways that actually matters to a healthy community and and really need to have that if we're ever going to get back to um, being a perhaps stronger and more vibrant community that everybody's wishing for. Well, so I, I hear in what you're saying that that there's a you know a hunger for um, the authenticity that that sort of underpins um, the network leadership model, and that there's also um, just some threats to it because of sort of the the leaning towards um, charismatic leadership, towards this kind of carving out our fiefdoms and, and having our power. I mean, do you see other kind of um, opportunities and threats for network leadership in today's context and in moving forward? Absolutely. I think you're right. There's definitely challenges to doing this work. And the four principles, as I've laid out, mission, trust, humility, um, being part of a constellation rather than a star, those things are actually generally disincentivized and not rewarded at all in our um, institutions. We typically look up to powerful big organizations. We uh, 
kind of are attracted to self-promoting, powerful people who have often lacked humility. Um, we focus on control mechanisms and, and many organizations, most organizations emphasize those more than anything else, getting people in line basically with carrots and sticks. Um, and then again, we always um, see organizations that are trying to build themselves up in their own right. And that almost becomes the mission in and of itself rather mm-hmm. than what is what is the larger purpose of why we exist? What, what are we ultimately trying to do? And asking those hard questions. So um, I think as far as threats, there is so much organizational inertia and that traditional leadership approach that has been deeply entrenched in our society and our organizations across sectors, uh, that's what's valued. And so it's really going to require a dramatic culture change and what we look up to, what we value um, and admire and recognize in our communities, in our society, in every respect. And um, I think that culture change is probably the hardest change to make because it's a fundamentally different set of values. Um, why are we why are we holding up these um, leaders or celebrities that have money and power, but actually don't necessarily have high integrity, don't necessarily mm-hmm. um, behave in a trustworthy way. They are not humble people necessarily at all. They're the opposite. Why do we spend our time and energy um, giving those folks attention where these, there are so many people, and I know this because I've built a career studying people like this, who are working quietly behind the scenes, often flying under the radar and building true deep connections building community and solving problems in their communities. They're really changing the world. And yet these these leaders are under-recognized, overworked, under-resourced, underappreciated. And I think what a sad state <laughs> that our society is in that we don't pay attention to that and we pay attention to people who do the opposite. Mm-hmm. And that is really why I do my work because I have been trying to raise visibility for this way of leading because I truly, having seen so many examples of it succeeding, that believe that this is the way forward in changing the world into one that we all want to live in for ourselves and for our children and our grandchildren. And um, there just needs to be a more mindful approach to what we value and what we put our time and attention and resources into. Um, Because I think we've been moving in the wrong direction for a very long time, unfortunately. If you're looking for ways to help ensure your learning business is moving in the right direction, we suggest you check out our sponsor for this quarter. Authentic Learning Labs is an education company seeking to bring complementary tech and services to empower publishers and L&D organizations to help elevate their programs. The company leverages technology like AI, data analytics, and advanced embeddable API-based services to complement existing initiatives, offering capabilities that are typically out of reach for resource stretch groups or growing programs needing to scale. Find out more at leadinglearning.com slash authentic. And now back to Salisa and Jane as they discuss the future of network leadership. Well, so what do you see as um, what's next for the network leadership field or or for your work around network uh, leadership? Where do you want to go or where do you see things going in the next few years? 
Well, the good news is I do see a dramatic increase in interest in this approach over the last, I'd say, five to six years. I I have to say, when I first started doing this work, this was, again, 2001 when I started, that um, there wasn't a lot of interest in this networked way of working or thinking. In fact, I had colleagues who didn't even understand what I was talking about. They said, oh, you're talking about outsourcing. You need to go study the theory around outsourcing and subcontracting and then mm-hmm. adapt that to the nonprofit center. I'd say, no, no, this isn't outsourcing. It's not outsourcing at all. It maybe looks like that on paper, but it really isn't. The dynamics and the relationships and the um, structure are very, very different. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time now, there's... Um, Certainly a lot of people who don't understand, but there is much, much more interest from organizational leaders, um, from the government sector, from the nonprofit sector, from the private sector, who understand the power of this approach, in large part, again, not because they've learned it from me, but because they have seen it work in their own experience. And then what I've provided perhaps is a framework and a a language for articulating a way of working that many people have been practicing for as long as people have been living in communities. That this, again, is going back to very, very basic ways of um, building community. And um, I think that gives me hope that there are people all over the world working in this way already. And I often um, find that those are the people with whom this work resonates the most with. So often um, when I'm giving a presentation at a conference, the people who come up and speak with me are so excited because they say, I've been working this way for decades. And now you finally help validate and explain Mm. what I've been trying to do. I'm going to take these ideas and share it with my board and share it with my funders and share it with my staff because now I have the language to explain all of this. So that has been tremendously rewarding. And again, I'm heartened by that because even in contexts that have been pretty hostile, as I've alluded to earlier in our conversation, contexts that have been pretty hostile to this way of working or certainly have not rewarded or incentivized it, there are still people who are doing the right thing and are on the right path and doing it because they believe in the larger cause that they're working for. And the fact that they can do it on a hostile environment suggests that the more we can educate people, and that's certainly what I spend all of my time doing now, besides being a parent, is um, really trying to get these stories out there, sharing this set of principles, and then helping people understand how they can put those ideas into practice. That that is the way forward, and it is very doable because, as I said, this isn't rocket science. It's very intuitive if you get back to focusing on the basic questions of what's our larger purpose, who do we want to work with, and building the type of community and the types of relationships that matter to us. And again, it's self-reinforcing because people enjoy working in this way. People find people who are of like mind that are equally passionate about their um shared goals and work together. And and all of us um, um, have been part of a team and a a functioning team. And you realize what a great feeling that is to have that camaraderie and have the fellowship of uh, peers and partners that you know and trust working toward a shared goal. And that's what gives so much of what we do in our lives meaning. And so I think there's a natural inclination for people to want to work this way. We just have to start asking the hard questions of what matters to us? Why are we doing what we're doing? And move in this direction, even if some of the external forces that have perhaps gone awry are not rewarding that. But the more we um, invest in this, the more results we'll begin to see and the more it will become self-perpetuating. So I do have a lot of hope that this will someday, my hope is 
by the time I retire that um, this way of leading will be the norm rather than the exception. And people will wonder, how could people have ever led mm-hmm. in any other way and been so egotistical or self-centered or wrong-headed to think that they could solve any of these problems on their own? And that we value this type of leadership and really invested and fully supported the leaders who have the strength and the capacity to lead from behind and um, make a habit of other, letting other people shine and making other people look good in service to the larger cause. Well, thank you for the work that you're doing and for sharing with us on the Leading Learning Podcast about this this approach to leadership. And with this next to last question, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. This is a question that we ask of all of our guests. Um, and, and the question is, you know, what has been one of your most powerful personal learning experiences since you left um, your, your formal education uh, as an adult? I think uh, the answer to that question for me would absolutely have to be uh, being a parent. And um, I'm a parent of four children, um, 15, 13, 11, and 8. And I'm a homeschooling parent oh, of wow. four children. <laughs> and that wasn't part of the plan necessarily, but now that we're doing it, I'm really um, happy with the choices that we've made. And I, I really realize how... Um, little control. I actually have <laughs> my four lovable children and um, I adore them, but I, I do realize that they're their own people and they have their own minds. And I think I try to use some of the principles that I go around the world teaching other people about of focusing on what's the big picture, what values, what skills, um, do I want my children to have when they're adults and really focus on those things and try to worry less about all of the pressures. And there are many pressures Mm. that children in this day and age are under, whether it's academic pressures, peer pressure, societal pressures that we never had when we were children. Um, Trying to keep my eye on the big picture and guide them toward that. But at the same time, I know a lot of it is out of my control Mm. and, um, that has been humbling without a doubt. (laughs) And I have had to use a tremendous amount of trust knowing that they will find their way and that if I teach them, my husband and I teach them the right values, that they will um, have the right guideposts to make the right decisions and be kind and contributing and positive uh, contributors to society and find a life that they're happy living. Um, So, That's certainly um, been eye-opening for me. The degree to which I've needed to let go has Mm. been higher than I ever imagined, but it's been humbling and a wonderful learning experience for me as well. Well, that's a, uh, thanks for sharing that example. And, and as you pointed out, obviously it fits so nicely with, with those principles that you shared, that idea of the the trust and, and letting go of the control so that you can trust. So the final question just is if listeners would like to know more about your work and about the network leadership model, where should they go? Sure. So I have a website that I built with colleagues of mine that are trusted um, values aligned partners that I've surrounded myself with. And we have a website that isn't selling anything. All we have put is all our research publications. We have podcasts, videos, articles, all of my case studies are all on that website um, for people. It really is a resource to support network leaders or people who aspire to be network leaders and want to learn more. Um, So all of that's available at newnetworkleader.org, all one word, 
Great. Well, we'll new, make, new networkleader.org. And we'll make sure to include a link to that in the show notes. Jane, thank you so much for taking time to, to share with us um, what you've learned by studying how leaders are making use of networks. And uh, it's been great because clearly I can tell how passionate you are about um, this model. So thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a privilege and an honor. That wraps up our interview with Jane Way Skillern. Thanks to Jane for making time for the interview, and thanks again to Nancy Bacon for the recommendation. To get show notes for this episode, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 174. When you're checking out those show notes, you're going to see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, we would be truly grateful if you would subscribe. We appreciate it because it helps us to get some data and insight into the impact of what we're doing. And we'd be grateful if you take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes or whatever service you use to listen to the Leading Learning Podcast. If it's on iTunes, all you have to do is go to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. That will put you in the right place. And, you know, Salise and I personally appreciate your rating and review, but much more importantly, those reviews and ratings really play an important role in helping the podcast to show up when people come searching for content related to leading learning and being in this whole business of continuing education, professional development, and lifelong learning. And we'd be grateful if you would take some time to check out our sponsors for this quarter. Find out what Blue Sky eLearn has to offer at leadinglearning.com slash blue sky and find out more about Authentic Learning Labs at leadinglearning.com slash authentic. And finally, consider telling others about the podcast. You can send out a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share. That will magically pop up a tweet that you can just send out. And uh, we'd love to see a a flood of those out there after this episode. So do consider doing that, going to Twitter. You can also, of course, like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash leading lifelong learning. And of course, you can share us with your network there. However you do it, please do help to share the good word about leading learning. Thanks again and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.